Welcome to this episode of the Bet and Goods podcast. Today, I have a very special guest with me, Pranay Kotasthane, who is a deputy director of the, of the Takshashila Institute, which is a, a think tank based on which focuses on public policy in India. Uh, hi, Pranay. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, uh, Pratyuman. Great to be here because I have been reading your newsletter from a long time and really happy to see that you've also started a podcast. So I enjoy your writing and that's why I'm here. Thank you, Pranay. Uh, my first question is, uh, how did you end up in public policy? It's not a common career path for many people. Yeah, so it's, you're right. You know, it was a bunch of coincidences intermediate by a bunch of failures, you know. So that's how I landed up in a completely different field. I am an engineer by training. I have worked in companies which do semiconductor production and I love that job. I uh, I did that work for around six years. Uh, but also I was interested in governance and making India a better place in one way or the other from a long time. So a lot of my colleagues after engineering wanted to go out of India, do things in the US or Singapore, for example, in better companies, but somehow that just didn't echo with me. You know, I wanted to be here and uh, there's some irrationality about it, but I just wanted to be here, do something in India. That was the only thing I knew at that time. And uh, so, yeah, uh, that governance and improving governance bug was always there. In 2008-9, I tried uh, the UPSC exams, which are India's gateway into uh, public service in bureaucracy, right? And uh, I didn't get through in uh, that, uh, couldn't make uh, make it through. So uh, I stopped uh, that goal temporarily, but I always wanted to get into this domain of governance somehow, you know, and th- back then there was no idea about public policy as a field outside government or bureaucracy, right? Either you are a politician, you are in a political party, or you are in bureaucracy. There was no other way out. So uh, it was always at the back of my mind. And then I chanced upon something in 2013 while I was working uh, and someone told me about Takshashila's public policy course, you know, and they said there is a course which you can take while you're working and it will tell you about how governments work, why they fail the way they do, how is it that you can improve. So it was really important to have a framework for passing the news that you uh, receive every day, right? Uh, it's very important to have a worldview and develop it. Otherwise, everything seems doomy, gloomy, and everything's going to the docks, right? Or so, the other way around. I th- you could have bouts yeah, of optimism absolutely. for everything you see. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's really important to have a framework to view these news. And I thought that public policy course, which I took uh, at that point in 2013, helped me uh, do this, you know, to analyze things in a way that you can put some logic to it. And that's where my journey started. I was really enthused by the course and what I learned. And then I said, I'll do a scholarship while I was working a part-time scholarship at Takshashila on geopolitics. And I was looking at how national power gets measured. Uh, that was where I started. And then uh, there was a of job opening. Takshashila was just beginning to start, uh, take more people in. So I was one of the first employees. And then, yeah, that's, that's where I started my journey. Uh, started looking at policy analysis, uh, geopolitics, public finance. And I've tried to keep my uh, knowledge base diverse. So I've, I don't, I haven't specialized in a lot of things, but I've tried to dabble with a bunch of different things related to public policy. Because one thing I've realized is to be uh, something in this field, you need to have a really broad base uh, of understanding a knowledge of variety of disciplines and domains to be able to apply to a particular problem. So that's where uh, my last six, seven years have been. And yeah, been writing, I've been doing podcasts in Hindi, in English, and uh, generally uh, exploring so many dimensions of this fascinating field called public policy.
when you made the jump from working in a corporate job to working with Takshila, wasn't it risky? At least with the with the facts you knew at the at the time, how did you handle the career risk of working with what then was a small public policy uh, research and teaching inst- uh, institute? Yeah, absolutely. There was definitely a trade-off. The trade-off being that. Obviously, a non-profit will not remunerate the same way as, you know, a, a top multinational company would do. Uh, and that that is a, there's a monetary trade-off definitely which is involved. Uh, but to counter that monetary trade-off is this idea that you get to have a public persona, right? And you get to learn new things. Uh, so that was the other side of the coin, right? And that was what really excited me because... Once you've spent six, seven years in a particular industry, you know that if things don't go right in your uh, the fork that you have taken, you might return back to that industry after a year and then go back to that work. Right. So that was my thinking back then that it was a calculated risk that, okay, if this doesn't work out a year down the line, I will return uh, to this industry, you know, so that, that was the thinking, uh, but uh, the rationale for taking that jump was just, if you evaluate the overall benefit that you, that you could get the way I evaluate it is yes, there will be monetary trade-off, but the gain, possible gain would be in terms of developing a persona, just getting to learn new things, just getting to learn uh, and meet uh, interesting people like you and so many others. That to me was really exciting. And that's why I thought, you know, let, let me try this. And yeah, it's been seven and a half years since then. So on your on your newsletter publicpolicy.substack.com you frequently talk about trade offs and a main th- and a, a big theme there is how does um what are the what are the factors leading to uh, public policies being made how can you measure them how can you um re- change the discourse in a way that that's more beneficial one of the uh, key themes you, you talked about was trade offs and in covid 19 um every country faced trade-offs, at least in the short run, between uh, economic costs of, of lockdowns and um, uh, saving, pe- uh, saving people's lives. How would you rate India's COVID-19 response from uh, over 2020 and 2021? Yeah, so uh, as you rightly said, right, um, there is always a trade-off involved. So there is no perfectly good public policy or perfectly bad policy, right? Mm -hmm. Even the worst public policy will have some benefits. Even the uh, best public policy will have some losers, right? So with that uh, background, uh, I would analyze that, uh, you know, India's uh, COVID-19 response in the first round uh, was sort of uh, beneficial in some ways and obviously uh, it it lost out on a lot of ways. I think the biggest loss we all know was how the first lockdown was done, right? The sudden lockdown and uh, the migration crisis that it caused was really unwarranted. It could have been done in a more, uh, in a more managed way. Uh, so that I think was sort of a big backdrop. Having said that, I think... Uh, what you see in India is generally uh, there was this idea that what the government is doing is probably the right way to go ahead. You know, so uh, for example, the cur- currently what you see in US about vaccine passports and the whole uh, halablu there, whether you should have passports and all those were questions which never even emerged in India, right? Like, yeah, you need to have a, a vaccine passport. You need to have vaccines that were that was well understood. So, but is this because uh, of that, is this because of trust in the government or some internal to, um, societal general trust in authority? Because I could see this turning. I I I, I could easily see uh, trust in the government collapsing and people saying, "I'm not going to uh, believe in. I'm not going to follow your vaccine passport mandate." Yeah, no, it is both, right? Author- one of the ways that authority manifests itself is through the government, right? And by default, the Indian uh, Indian society's sort of path dependence has been that ultimately the state is seen as the troubleshooter, you know, and this is a deeply internalized thing in a lot of our 
uh, thinking in our public psyche you know so a uh, state is th- thought to be a troubleshooter and in this situation it's also it was thought that you know state will and state must take us out of this uh, pandemic so in that sense there is a uh, uh, there was this belief that you know something the state will do and if the state says that uh, act in a certain way we will uh, try to follow that you know because of the uncertainty so that was what i would say i would characterize the first uh, response as uh, but i think the, by the second wave a lot of course correction happened and generally uh, i saw some positives for example we've been working with uh, governments on some of these the thing that we observed what we did uh, at takshashila was after the as soon as covid hit we pivoted a lot of our research work to covid-19 on various aspects economic reconstruction international relations what should we do on testing vaccine deployment etc we we were one of the first people i think the first think tank to have got out a vaccine deployment strategy thing in august 2020 so that was a sort of what we did back then we saw actually got, got implemented ahead of the second lockdown you know so it mm-hmm. sort of came to use and came to fruition uh, just before the second lockdown and i we saw some of those uh, policies for example we advocated for uh, decentralized handling of lockdowns you know it shouldn't be the union government directing mm-hmm. it but there should be uh, micro lockdowns district wise lockdowns which are handled by the state governments and uh, a graduated lockdown scenario right you don't just have a binary 1 0 but you have various levels of uh, lockdowns and unlockdowns right so those things we saw got implemented in the second lockdown uh, many of the states like karnataka particularly did well on this so uh, th- this was the second lockdown and i think yeah uh, then the vaccine thing was the next big thing uh, and you can say uh that that was again a bit of a disappointment primarily because the government did not place a huge number of orders up front uh and that was strange because india unlike in many other sectors india does have a comparative advantage in this so one would have thought that the government would have placed Uh, a lot of orders up front and you know uh, ensured that there are uh, there's enough capacity available but that didn't happen so that was uh, disappointing uh, why do you think but- that why do you think that happened because you saw several countries uh, around the world doing this i think canada placed uh, vaccine uh, orders up to four times its population so it's 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 not as if the government didn't have examples was this some myopia at the time or was it um a broader failure to consider vaccines and just get stuck in the moment yeah i we can only speculate intentions you know mm-hmm. but let me speculate about intentions uh, first of all the fascinating thing about canada was they also had a decentralized strategy at, until some point so in fact right. some states placed orders not just um, the union uh, federal government of canada but coming back to uh, india uh, Uh, to speculate on the intentions i would say i think the government was uh, complacent and it felt that it didn't need to place these advance orders just because they are going to be manufactured in india in any case you know so there was this idea that we will uh, get access to it whenever this happens uh, and that that was the uh, crucial point of neglect i guess uh, and then it, it they did change that right now if you see the current vaccine policy there are advanced orders placed as once purchase order placed there are also uh, uh, now states are getting into the action there is a idea of getting some of the psus involved to increase manufacturing capacity right so these uh, all things uh, there was a starting problem and thereafter things picked up pace so now if you see the vaccine uh, daily vaccination numbers they are very respectable uh, and um, numbers wise of course india will always be in the top on many things but uh, even from uh, percentage wise uh, some uh, for example districts inside uh, karnataka and some wards within bangalore are upwards of 70 80% fully vaccinated so that's a positive 
in the start of this year, in, I think January or February, the, the Indian government announced that it was donating vaccine doses to other countries that couldn't afford it. This was part of the Quad. And um, it, it seems that over the course of the last two or three years, Indian foreign policy has shifted away from a more dovish tone with China towards a more hawkish tone, especially after the clash last, last May. Uh, how do you think India's vaccine capacity fits into this broader this broader question of great power diplomacy? Right. Hmm. So, uh, you know, if you see it from, there are two lenses, okay. One, if you see from a very realist lens, the realist lens would say it's all about power, right? And whether if you have power to do a certain thing, uh, you are going to go ahead in international relations. Otherwise, you are stuck where you are. Uh, the other uh, side of that would be a more constructivist view. And that would look at uh, not just how power matters, but the legitimacy in international relations as well. And uh, if I see from the second lens, I think uh, this idea of whatever vaccine maitri and uh, vaccine uh, uh, deployment uh, was a signal that, you know, India can, can and has a positive role to play in the world order, you know, so that was sort of the signal uh, being given. And I think that there was nothing wrong in doing that. Uh, you know, the, the I've seen there is a lot of criticism for that. And I had also written about it because the criticism was to, uh, to not anticipate India's need. The criticism was not to deploy internationally. You know, there's a difference between the two. Mm -hmm. uh, and because there, it was anticipated that India didn't need to place advanced orders, uh, eventually uh, many things uh, happened. But uh, if you see from an international relations point of view, it did garner a huge amount of goodwill. Uh, and it also led to US response in the second wave uh, and, and it was explicitly said, right, when uh, Secretary Blinken visited India, he did mention that uh, a lot of in, uh, U.S. responses were because what India did in the first wave. You know? So there was uh, there was even a concrete uh, takeaway from the actions that ha happened there. So uh, I saw it uh, positively uh, that there was this willingness to sort of uh, go beyond being stuck in what we can do for ourselves. Uh, so that was a positive signal being sent. And we can't remember, we can't do that in all fields, right? This mm -hmm. is one field where you have a comparative advantage. So why not use it? You know, so uh, that is how uh, I saw. And I, I, it was not just under quad, by the way. This, a lot of the first uh, uh, time which India did distribution was completely on India's own accord. You know, there was no mm -hmm. quad involved. Thereafter, you had the quad summit meeting and there was a quad working group formed on vaccines. And that is still in uh, motion about trying to get more vaccines to Indo-Pacific. But the first time, all the news that you see was purely India doing things on its own. Uh, and there were two aspects to it. One was vaccines which were donated and that was primarily to the neighboring states the smaller neighboring states in india and the other aspect was of course uh, the commercial uh, supplies and uh, commercial supplies obviously were uh, needed to be adhered to and good that indian uh, government didn't block that at that time so there were both aspects to it uh, yeah and so i wouldn't put it in the dovish or hawkish sense in this i think it in there was uh, trying to convey that it can play a positive role in a pandemic with an instrument where it already had a comparative advantage. So I thought it was uh, it, it was a prudent move uh, given the uncertainties at that time. Mm -hmm. um, speaking of the Quad, the Indian foreign policy over the last few years, last two years especially, has seen a shift of, away from... Um, a shift towards the, the the more you might call it the uh, NATO sphere, with 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 uh, India having more engagement with Australia, China, the US, uh, sorry, Australia, Japan, and the and the and the US. 
do you think that this is a move away from India's traditional um, relationship with Russia and a move by these powers to counter uh, Chinese um, future hegemony in the in the Southeast Asian region? Yes. So. Uh... Let me uh, explain it this way. I think uh, a lot of this counts down to national power, right? Again, I'm now I we believe in realism in international affairs. So let me explain from the lens of power. One, uh, uh, there's a really nice paper called The Power of Nations by Mike Beckley, where he sort of proposes a good measure for national power is GDP into GDP per capita, you know, so it's a proxy, it has lots of imperfections, but uh, it he tried to analyze great power rivalries over the last 150 years or so. And he found that this measure is a great predictor of uh, great power rivalries, you know, uh, it explains it to a lot more compared to traditional measures like GDP, or number of uh, uh, tanks or number of soldiers that you have. Because GDP takes into account your economic capacity and GDP per capita takes into account your costs, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so in a sense, it visualizes power as a ledger, rather than thinking of it as just an accumulation of certain factors. So that I, I found that fascinating. Now coming back to your question, look at Russia from GDP into GDP per capita lens. It's been declining over so many years, right? Right after the uh, Soviet Union fall, right? So in that sense, India and Russia's relationship was very limited, you know, beyond the defense angle. If you look at the economic angle, you look at uh, uh, trade-wise, you look at uh, exchange of human capital, there was very little to say on that count. You know, it's been on a declining trend from a long time. So I wouldn't even put Russia and US on the same level uh, from a, a long time, you know. Uh, contrast that with the US, you are from Bangalore and uh, I'm from Bangalore. Just the amount of societal interactions between right. India and US have been so huge, right? Uh, uh, companies from US here and I mean, Bangalore is so deeply connected. And the with cultural the US. impact. I drink exactly. Starbucks, but I've never been to a Russian coffee shop before. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, maybe uh, my parents' generation has some uh, remembrance of Russia because our textbooks in the socialist era were Russian and things mm -hmm. like that, you know. So, but uh, ever since, at least from my generation onwards, I have no no connection with Russia, you know. Uh, and I am born in 1985. So, there is no recollection of anything Russian for me. Uh, by that time, we had already changed. Uh, so, so, so what the integration with US on an economic front has been happening over two or three decades, you know, uh, what was the initial stumbling point for this? The initial stumbling point was Pakistan, right? Because uh, a lot of Indian foreign policy uh, saw US from the Pakistan lens, mm -hmm. given the way India-Pakistan relations were, the wars that we fought, Kargil, etc. Uh, but after 2001, and I think there's a systematic change in US as well, over uh, since 2005 or six, the civil nuclear deal, mm -hmm. which uh, George Bush uh, and Manmohan Singh's government did. I think that was the landmark moment that signaled that uh, you know, we are over Pakistan. It's mm -hmm. that doesn't matter. And in India also, there was a big recognition. Remember, those were India's golden growth years as well, right? right. You had, uh, you had uh, GDP growth rates eight nine percent year, yeah, year yeah. on year for five six years. So there was this idea that our main foreign policy determinant is what we do on the economic growth path, right? And right. so, and there was, uh, by that time, if you see from the US angle as well, there was a recognition that China is emerging as a bigger threat. So there was a natural congruence of interests. And that's why what started in 2005 has only grown, you know, whether it's a democratic establishment or the Republican, there is a convergence of interests. And that's why 
many steps have happened after that so no one in in washington talks about india and pakistan at the same level with respect right. to the us now you know it was a very stark reality just two decades ago i don't know you would probably would have read about it but we've literally seen whenever a us president or a secretary of state used to visit india they used to also go to islamabad you know there used to be like this necessary requirement that there should be a symmetry uh, but that's but, no longer no, the but, case but when you think of it now it seems almost it, it seems like a pretty bad idea when india's when india is much larger country much larger economy that india's entire foreign policy was based on the was like it, it revolved around how do we not let pakistan take over x areas in kashmir and uh, defeat them on the international stage why did that happen was it because of the memory of the partition or was it because india's uh, capabilities weren't large enough to project power beyond our immediate region yeah i think there's a third angle pakistan was also a powerful country for a mm-hmm. long time right i mean remember it was the first asian tiger so to right. say right the period of 1950s 60s pakistan's economic growth rate were much faster than india it was a much bigger country because bangladesh was a part of it in the form of east pakistan so uh, that was one and of course there was a part dependence you know it's not just the partition but the subsequent wars 48 right. uh, you know 60 65 71 and then uh, kargil so uh, it is sort of uh, a combination of uh, pakistan's power uh, india also being in a slow growth rate so the difference between the two countries were not much and the enmity which was there so it was a combination of all these I think the real uh, in fact you know parvez musharraf mentioned a lot of people asked him in his book he's written why did uh, why did they do kargil mm-hmm. right and the, he said that if we don't do kargil like incident now then india would be way ahead of us in the next 5 years 6 years you know right. so if, if we can do something to block india's growth or uh, play our role it's now you know that was his stated intent for this. so it it just shows that there was more symmetry in many senses in through the 60s 70s 80s and that's why it was a a, a big deal uh, but then i think uh, uh, pakistan did so many self goals that it has all, all it has uh, simplified india's uh, task <laughs> and india really took a different trajectory right 91 and 91 subsequently was a different trajectory and now with china uh, having uh, done the things that it, it has done in doklam and then in ladakh there is a strategic uh, shift also in thinking mm-hmm. and it's now it, it, india's even strategic establishment is looking towards the more important threat rather than looking at pakistan so yeah many factors like like everything in social sciences it's multicausal uh, but still this is how i would explain the story um a big your foreign policy world you when i read your newsletter and listen to your podcast uh, revolves around the idea that national power is mostly determined by economic power and there are other factors including cultural factors but if you want to get more powerful uh, you should get you should become rich and the rest will more or less take care of itself is that correct yeah i would just add one more element to it you need economic power and you need a strong state you know and by a strong state i would mean not in the sense that a state which is authoritarian but a state which does the thing it is supposed to do you know so getting the, the house in order providing public goods mm-hmm. uh, checking market failures these are really important factors for uh, india projecting so uh, we sort of believe in paul kennedy's great work you know the rise and mm-hmm. fall of uh, uh, great powers where he argues that uh, economic power is necessary to gain uh, military power and military power is necessary to uh sustain that economic growth right so you right. it's sort of a uh, it's sort of a loop uh, and you need both to do it so uh that's why i think uh, it's it's both but 
the reason why um, some of my writing would prioritize economic growth is because amongst the other forms of power economic power is most fungible right it okay. is easier to convert economic power into other forms of power whereas military power it's difficult for example now you can't go and invade other countries right <laughs> probably you could do it in uh, uh, 500 years ago and that's what uh, that's what how countries gain power right they mm-hmm. uh, they needed either people or they needed land and the way to get, get that was just uh, colonize other areas uh, and that's not what you can do now so the utility of military power in gaining uh, a lot of other things has gone down which means the fungibility of economic power is uh, fundamental now and uh, once you have more economic power then yeah you can invest your things in a lot more military strength you can build up your uh, internal strength etc right so that's why yeah I, I, economic power plus a strong state are both factors required mm-hmm. well, okay so now on that on that note um India's economy was mostly socialist under the license I and mean, government regulated under the the license permit raj after 91 in 1991 there, there were the big bank seizures of reforms but if you look in the last 15 years in um, the pace of reforms hasn't kept up with what you might have expected in 1991 uh, why has that happened and do you think and and, and how do you think it 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 hurts india's uh, economic growth prospects right i mean that's the central challenge right so right. i mean uh, pooja mehra's book uh, talks about the lost decade right and mm-hmm. so many stats about how our gdp per capita has uh, gone down bangladesh has caught up and things like that so uh, the way i would put it is see every reform has an end date right uh, there is a diminishing marginal return mm-hmm. from any uh, reform and uh, what india did in 1991 sustained us for 2 uh, 3 3 decades but now there is uh, a lot more to be done and also like many excellent books by uh, economists have already said how the 1991 reform also was not a complete liberalization right, right. so uh, land and labor still under the yeah. same rules they were before absolutely labor market and uh, i really liked uh, a line from shruti rajgopalan's chapter on the 1991 project where she said that the license raj ended in 1991 but the permit raj didn't you know right. so you still have lot of permits required for land for labor to hire people to fire people uh, so there are so many of the next generation of reforms which are still to be done so the, what happened in 1991 sustained us for the uh, for two decades in fact reforms started much before 91 right some right. eight late 80s so we saw uh, uh, gains from it over the last 20 25 years and by 2011 we already saw pa- private investment declining uh, stagnating rather so that that's where the challenge was so a lot of those reforms uh, land labor capital mm-hmm. are yet to be done you know so that's where we are and that's where uh, we are not gaining getting right. the uh, gains over the last mm-hmm. uh, few years for that reason for this reason and a few others i'm a skeptic on india's economic growth like i've written before my case mm-hmm. i mean obviously the uh, factor markets aren't liberalized but my case lies mostly on the fact that first uh, i i i don't think there's a serious chance of female labor participation increasing to levels of of other countries that have reached um, economic a uh, quick economic development it's around 19% by the latest numbers but if you look at countries like bangladesh now it's it's around 40% there uh, south korea and taiwan hit even higher in the 60s in the 60% and my next argument is that um if you look at outside the main cities that is outside the metros uh, in the indian edu- education system is horribly broken with very very few people being able to to do a uh, basic arithmetic i mean you might see this in the news but the numbers from ngos indicate that may max at max a third of eighth graders can divide so um i along with the factor markets plus the lack of education i really don't see how india can achieve 
if, even if you forget developed country status like um, Western Europe or the US, even middle income status like Malaysia or uh, Indonesia today. Yeah, so it's uh, first of all, yeah, let's let's uh, baseline uh, mm -hmm. some of these uh, assumptions, right? First, whenever even though we are saying that there was. Uh, there was a stagnation over the last 10 years we are still talking about 5% real gdp growth right. right so it's not it's not that stagnation mm -hmm. at all the question that we are grappling with it is can we get to 10% right, right. i think 5% is would happen in uh, a lot of things even despite the government yeah. you know with or, or without you so, are still going at 5% yeah, so th th that's the baseline, right? So uh, that's one thing to keep in mind. Uh, second thing, yeah, in a lot of things, government is not the primary driver in Indian economy, right? I mean, think of it, who would have, uh, a lot of people would have uh, bet against India in at the time of independence, mm -hmm. they would have bet India in the 70s, 80s. Uh, and yet we have overcome that right so the key idea is we are a democracy democracy avoid uh, allows for course correction right and that's mm -hmm. the lesson for this so there were things that went wrong until 70s 80s we corrected right, the course right and then mm -hmm. you had you see you saw what you saw uh, look at the uh, uh, for example the uh, information technology revolution as well you know who would have bet uh, for India before 2000s and before the Y2K. Uh, people would have vaguely said, yeah, people speak English, there are some engineers, but you know, we, we did that. So mm. I, I would never bet against India is uh, my long bet is always uh, with India. Uh, and the reason why I say that is twofold. One, if you look at any sort of number, right? Like we were discussing, I mean, both of both you and I are wearing spectacles. Mm -hmm. If we just count the number of people who wear spectacles in India, it would be more than the population of many countries, right? right. Uh, so you count many such factors, uh, many such factors, which are on the demand side and on the supply side, you still have the numbers despite the difficulties, you know, and right. you already know that the working age to non-working age population will peak only by 2035 by current projection. Right. So you will have more people uh, entering the working population age. So despite what the government has done uh, and not done, we still have uh, this window of opportunity where there will be people, uh, young people willing to do more things, wanting to do more things either in India or they would want to go out and work, right? So mm -hmm. that, uh, uh, that that is one factor that I wouldn't uh, underplay. You know, the, the, this was just the case. Uh, no one expected India to take uh, the shape in the IT sector that it did, you know, and now it is just, we no, take it for granted. I mean, yes, so, the IT sector is a good example because it provides volume of exports, but when you, mm -hmm. when you count it for employment, it's, 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 it isn't as much as what would happen. I mean, it's, it's very little for, it's very, it's very much concentrated in large cities, Bangalore, Pune, Mumbai, Delhi, Gurgaon, Chennai, but it's not a good example of what can take India uh, beyond um, to 10 percent GDP growth and employment so that so we use the the example of IT sector I don't buy that because that's the top three percent of the country uh, who which can speak English well and knows how to code right so first uh, a lot of current uh, you're absolutely right that uh, the direct employment is less but as you know right there will be so many uh, downstream effects right just right. because you have more purchasing power uh, I mean, just look at even Bangalore, right? The right. How, the way the city has grown in many other sectors is because you have a demand function, which has been really increased by the IT sector, right? So right. there is boom in construction, there is boom in many other sectors where employment elasticity is high, right? So uh, that is a, a clear uh, indication. Second, the new generation of IT boom is also happening in tier two towns, right? So you have so many new companies like Zoho, etc., which are not in the uh, top four or five cities. So yeah, that is one. But you're absolutely right that the direct 
employment impact on this is low so uh, which means that we need to look at other sectors we need to uh, stimulate demand on certain other things where employment elasticity is high right so you would look mm -hmm. at infrastructure development uh, various forms of construction probably building new cities uh, you know so things like that are really big projects that we need to embark on now the third one is just looking at new industries as well you know what can we do in uh, the new form of industries is really important and the fourth factor i think uh, which is important is just how uh, china is shaping up right with mm -hmm. the nationalism uber nationalism coming up there you saw what's happening with alibaba and tencent etc there and with the us china tensions there is uh an idea that other countries and companies want to at least have another sourcing center right i don't think anyone will go out of china there are far too many advantages but building resilience is important and mm -hmm. that's where i think india is competing not with china but i would say india's competition is vietnam malaysia and right. indonesia right so that's that's where there is another opportunity so i i, I would say yes and, and if you see there is a recognition now in uh, governments that yes something needs to be done you saw that at least divestment promises have been made right. second you saw how this vodafone and uh, this kane uh, case yeah. was going the on for a long was... time yeah so the government has finally finally Given accepted up. that this is not the way so you know these are uh, ways uh, in which things happen in a messy democracy like all other countries mm -hmm. and and there is a recognition that we need to get our growth back on track so uh, and with the other ex uh, external factors which i spoke about there is an opportunity you know so right. uh, i would i would say that we we have Uh, uh, a a big role to play going ahead and i wouldn't write india off just yet okay i like your i like your 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 optimism because i'm a people complain that i'm too cynical sometimes so that's it's a good balance to my cynicism uh yeah. I, i'm not being an optimist i'm being a realist <laughs> <laughs> okay okay yes I'll, i'll i'll take that as a good answer um my next question to you is uh, you you write a lot uh on the internet and you write for, for for mainstream media at times too what is the biggest mistake people make while communicating public policy ideas to a general audience hmm that's a good question uh, but you have been reading and you have a lot of grouse about uh, public policy writing so i don't you start <laughs> i think first of all um most people use too much term too much terminology mm -hmm. their ideas don't flow from one paragraph to another and uh, and they're very condescending on the reader because they they okay. don't treat the reader as an equal i write for my for my friends who don't know economics but are interested so i think those are the three biggest problems that are there yeah so i mean you have the answers <laughs> you know but i mean you're absolutely right you know uh, the public policy discourse is sometimes so off putting right like right. Uh, first of all it is happening in only english right, right. Uh, all our great ideas are happening in uh, a language which uh, very few in india will have a very good handle on right mm -hmm. so that's one uh, big issue and when people talk to uh, languages beyond english it's not as if they don't talk it's a very infantilized discourse you know right. so the the inability to speak english is uh, thought of as a proxy to uh, your foolishness right so mm -hmm. you there are if you check youtube in any other language in kannada in hindi uh, you will see a lot of explainers really basic explainers but you will not see public policy discourse like the ones that you and i are having now so that is the starting point for me and i think there is no way we can have better public policies if we don't demand uh, the things that we want mm -hmm. and we are able to articulate our demands properly right so a lot of my work is towards trying to at least in a very small infinitesimal way uh, improve our discourse on the demand side right uh, uh, there's a strong we st strongly believe that if we ask for the right things 
it's a democracy the governance will sort out you know people will gov- politicians finally are very attuned to what the people want you know so if we are able to ask the right things we'll get them but it's just about even trying to articulate what are the things that we want where the challenges like you know uh, in india it's an outlier in terms of provision of public goods right we are either asking for individual benefits or benefits for my group but no one's asking for public goods right not no one but very few so the idea is can we make this public discourse broad enough so that people are able to analyze things for themselves and uh, analyze for themselves where government's role is warranted and where it is not you know so that's the that's the starting point for me and that's why a lot of the writing comes from that angle or even the podcast comes from that angle can we change the discourse and demand the things from the government and articulate them better uh, what's the what's the biggest learning in your hindi podcast fully abazi for listeners who haven't heard it a highly recommended i used it to get from a very bad level in hindi to a medium level for, for my ib exams <laughs> <laughs> oh that's great yeah so there was an instrumental value to it as well yeah right. but uh, the way the learning that i have uh, got is that yes there is a demand for this kind of content you know so uh, as i told you uh, in the beginning there was broadly there were two or three categories of uh, hindi uh sort of uh, discourse so there were no podcast to so to say at mm-hmm. back then but the discourse was uh, either explainers on youtube uh, on really basic things you know what is article 370 and there will be a nice video which will have <laughs> 5 million views or something like that right so those kinds of content were all uh, there and then there was this high pollutant content in uh, hindi as well on say rajya sabha or lok sabha tv where there will be great interviews really high uh, level of uh, english hindi uh, but again it will be in a very boring way that i don't think anyone sees lok sabha tv today or right? <laughs> like very does. few people yeah some yeah very few people would do right so the idea was can we bridge that gap speak in a way which is not being a purist in a language but speak in a way that a person would connect with and then try to take on some of the most challenging content in public policy in philosophy history and discuss it as a conversation just like you and I are doing mm. uh, so that was a starting point and luckily at least we found that there is a demand for this kind of content people do listen for one hour Uh, and the biggest thing for me is that's the only content which my parents listen to you know mm. there's nothing else that i write that gets to them <laughs> that connects with them but this is one thing that they listen to they argue they disagree with me you know uh, mm. uh, so that, uh, that similarly one of our listeners had told us that the way uh, she uses kuliyabazi is when she is driving a car with her parents they will just stop uh, they'll play kuliyabazi they'll stop it at a particular point and then discuss with mm-hmm. each other agree disagree that mm-hmm. to me is the biggest win you know it's to spark more kuliyabazi we don't have all the answers definitely but yeah, as long as we are able to spark a better public discourse it's a big win okay Uh, my, my last question to you is if the prime minister said pranay here you go you're my uh, chief policy sir uh, whatever you say i'll i'll get pass through parliament i'll i'll get i'll get the bureaucracy to implement it what would you do right um, you know i have this uh, big thing that i would first actually look at one uh, or document all the market failures which are there in place mm-hmm. right second then look at how am i going to fix all those market failures there is there is a template for it right you know uh, that the government finally does either production uh, financing or regulation there are only right. broad three things that and you can easily map them to market failures right positive mm-hmm. externalities need you to finance uh, to the recipients if you have negative externalities you need to uh, regulate and if there are public goods yeah so uh, regulate in uh, one way or the other right uh, and then if you have public goods as a market failure you need to probably think of production so you know there is a mapping you can do so ma- what i would do is first 
do an audit of all the things that government does mm-hmm. and then try to look at what are the market failures and where is it that i would mm-hmm. concentrate a uh, second uh, just one learning that you will come out of this is just looking at marginal cost of public finances mm-hmm. this idea that 1 rupee of government spending isn't 1 rupee cost to the society it's much more right mm-hmm. so as long as we are spending on market failures uh our mcpf will be low if we are right. spending on uh running air india and running a lot of companies steel mills and coal mines things, yeah and intervening in uh, things where the government doesn't then then we are not uh just looking at labor law regulation right if you do this audit you will come to that uh, a no, lot of it I is not i was surprised you didn't talk about government failure because i thought the first thing you would do is make a list of all the regulations and check if the if the ones that that are already there are working well or not and then cut the ones off that don't work yeah i, I think that's one another way to get it but i am saying even a narrower list right just look at market failures okay, and yeah. try to look at but yeah i mean uh, another way would be uh, to start off if i were to be given uh, a target that you know start doing things in uh one month two months yeah would go the other way and look at government failures and uh especially things like renting and I, i don't know if you know this just now for example we have a capacity cap on airlines we have a price cap and uh, we have a price ceiling and we have a price floor did you know this in <laughs> india it is airlines. it is we I have all three a teacher of mine said it is impossible to enforce both the price and capacity control at the same time yeah Unless but you, you have three we have another one we also <laughs> have a price floor so that is the kind of intervention uh, which is clearly you know sort of pro business and not pro market mm-hmm. uh, so would definitely try to and that is an example of a government failure so you would want to look at markets how can you enable better markets in the aviation space and not worry about a company failing or b company failing so that right. was what my focus that <laughs> no the the avian the aviation space is, is special i think there's a one profit quote which says that the that the cumulative profits for for investors in the industry are negative so mm. i've 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 always wondered why in the, why anybody starts in airlines since they all go bankrupt anyways yeah, <laughs> yeah. i th- i guess it's because of optimism in some sense right maybe <laughs> i won't fail for example right? yeah i yeah as i many public policies fail also and with that we're yeah. coming to the end of this it's been great talking to you mostly because you have a sense of you have a world view that's that's me, people fail to articulate their world view of how they think but i think the thing you've got anxiety is um you've understood the implicit assumptions in your head which almost nobody does so i was really great talking to you thank you and all the best for your podcast keep writing i avidly read it thank you yeah thank you